Catherine, I know you've spent a bit of time in Kenya, not just in lockdown, like we covered last season, but I actually took my first trip there this past December, right before the holidays. I first went on a safari in the Mara Naboisho Conservancy beside the Masai Mara, but after that, my sister actually moved to Nairobi for a job with the United Nations Refugee Agency. So I've had some really good reasons to return as much as possible since then. Hearing your stories has given me no small amount of travel envy, and Kenya has been high on my destination wish list for a while now. I didn't think I'd be traveling anywhere, let alone to Africa, during the pandemic, but when I was invited to visit with Mikado Safaris and the Elowana collection of luxury lodges, both of whom have rigorous and carefully thought out COVID protocols in place to keep visitors safe, I figured this might just be the right opportunity to go. I don't blame you for taking them up on that invite. I would love to visit the lodges you stayed at, including Elowana Tortillas Camp in Ambaseli National Park near Mount Kilimanjaro, and Elowana Sand River in the spectacular Masai Mara. Those were definitely selling points for me, but what the two of us discussed that we thought was most interesting would be the chance to see firsthand how the tourism industry in Kenya, as well as the various wildlife conservation and charitable community efforts that are supported by it, had been coping with the coronavirus pandemic and all its challenges. I'm Catherine Romine, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Eric Rosen. This is Conscious Traveler, our podcast celebrating sustainability, conservation, culture, and community around the world. By sharing our stories and those of fascinating experts, we aim to help you make your next adventure more meaningful and memorable. One of the highlights of my trip, and there were a lot, was the chance to spend a few days at Elowana Kifaru House in the Lewa Wildlife Conservancy, just north of Mount Kenya. Lewa was started on a small parcel of 5,000 acres of a larger ranch back in 1983 as a sanctuary for black rhinos, which remain critically endangered today. The conservancy now spans 65,000 acres and is home to one of Kenya's densest wildlife populations, including herds of rare grevy zebras and finely patterned reticulated giraffes, as well as a healthy crew of both white and black rhinos. The rhinos had even just had their babies a month or so before my arrival, so there were baby rhinos trotting around behind their mamas. That is adorable. I saw an infant rhino in Namibia, and she was like this little dinosaur from land before time. So cute, right? More than saving species through anti-poaching measures, though, the Lewa Conservancy is involved in all kinds of initiatives, ranging from building schools and medical clinics to bringing clean drinking and irrigation water to the surrounding communities and providing microloans to local women so they can support their families through work. It sounds like they're doing so many incredible things, all of which depend on both donations and tourism dollars coming in. Exactly. It's the perfect example of how the travel industry supports so many endeavors beyond what visitors experience. I sat down with Lewa's chief executive officer, Mike Watson, to learn more about their projects and how they have adapted to deal with the challenges posed by COVID. So, Mike, let's take it from there. How and why was Lewa started in the first place? Yeah, welcome to Lewa. <laughs> Thank you, it's <laughs> Again, beautiful. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Lewa and I have been for the last 10 years, luckily enough. I first started working here in Kenya, actually on Lewa about 25 years ago, and arrived around about the same time that Lewa was being established and registered as a not-for-profit organization in this country in 1995. But as a conservation organization and as primarily a rhino conservancy, sort of history behind it is that the, the Craig family who used to own this land on which the conservancy was established were approached by the Kenyan government in the late 70s, early 80s. And a woman called Anna Mertz, who'd been brought up in West Africa, who happened to be visiting here at the time of the last uh, poaching crisis in Africa in the 70s and 80s, when the rhino numbers in actually in Kenya went from 20,000 down to 200 in the space of about 12 years. Wow. 
the what final ninety nine percent of the population disappeared. Yeah, yeah they're sort of or, or, on or, average three per day every day for twelve years. Wow! And clearly, when they got down to two hundred, there was a recognition that if that. Uh, final 200 were not going to be wiped off the face of Kenya, that people had to do something. And the Kenyan government decided to catch the remaining outlying populations and put them in secure areas. And one of those secure areas happened to be on the cattle ranch mm. that the Craig family were running here on Lewa. And the Kenyan government asked the Craig family whether or not they'd be willing to establish a small fence section within their cattle ranch to house some of the last remaining black rhino in northern Kenya. And that was the sort of genesis, if you will, for Lewa as it stands today. Well, where does it stand today? How how big is it? How many rhino are there? <laughs> yeah, so three or four were moved in in the 80s to establish the Ngara Sigoi Rhino Sanctuary on 5,000 acres of the much bigger cattle ranch. Mm. In 1995, as I say, Labour Wildlife Conservancy was established and the cattle ranch was moved from a cattle ranch into a wildlife conservancy and the whole of Lewa and the Government Forest Reserve, which is just to the south of Lewa, was fenced into one area to establish the Lay Wildlife Conservancy, which is 61,000 acres. Wow. And today we have well over 200 rhino. A mix of black and white, you were telling us. A, a mix of black and white. The black have built up over the years to now 114. Mm. And the whites were imported, the founder population were imported from South Africa mm -hmm. to establish an ex situ population of white rhino, southern white rhino here in Kenya, because uh, white rhino are not indigenous to Kenya. Right. But they've done extremely well. And as I say, we now have 100 or over 100 now. That's just one of the success stories. Of course, we've been noticing beautifully striated grevy zebras, yep. which are quite rare. And then also those reticulated giraffes, which maybe they're not as rare, but they're still stunning to look at. And I haven't seen them <laughs> elsewhere before. Yep. So what are some of the other animals that uh, populations that have flourished in the time being? So, yeah, I mean, as you say, the grevy zebra is a beautiful animal, slightly bigger than the common zebra. They're peculiar to northern Kenya. They used to range across the whole of northern Kenya into southern Somalia, into southern Ethiopia. Ethiopia and further afield, but over the years as a result of habitat degradation and human population pressure, their numbers have dwindled. I think there are, oh gosh, I'm putting myself out there, I think <laughs> sort of three, 4,000 grevy zebra left in the world in northern Kenya, a few in southern Ethiopia, and we've got over 300 here. So we've got 10% or just over 10% wow. of the world's population here on Lewa. Other species, well, we've got the big five here on Lewa. Mm -hmm. So we've got the elephant, the buffalo, the, you know, the lion, the uh, leopard and the rhino. Mm -hmm. So tourists have an opportunity to come here and see the big five. Often within the same panorama. <laughs> Often within the same panorama and the same game drive. That's right. It's all well choreographed here on Lewa. But no, we're lucky enough to have the habitat for those animals and others. And you know, one of our big strategies over the years has been to act as a platform on which we can move animals out of labor mm. into other areas. Like a nursery almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And we have moved rhino out of here into other properties to establish other new rhino sanctuaries, and we will continue to do that with those and other species. Reseed wildlife populations in other parts of of, of Kenya. Mm. The wildlife is one part of the story, mm. though, because there are some other ways in which Lewa Wildlife Conservancy functions, including fostering community-based conservation efforts, right? Yeah. Educating the communities around the conservancy about the value of conservation, and then also projects like the microloans, like schools like clinics can you describe some of those projects that you've undertaken and then maybe tell us a little bit about how tourism specifically is able to support them you know the philosophy of low wildlife conservancy has always been very much outward looking mm -hmm. and very much engaged with the kenyan communities the pastoralist communities in particular but not exclusively the pastoralist communities on our boundaries recognizing that you know, if wildlife is going to have a future 
uh, in the long term in this country, particularly bearing in mind the population of Kenya continues to grow. If wildlife's going to have a future in Kenya, it has to be relevant to, to Kenyans, has to be relevant to people at scale. And we recognise that right from the outset and engaging communities in the work we do, demonstrating to them that wildlife can have benefit and can be relevant to them is something that we've taken very seriously. And so we've invested very, very heavily in, in, in outreach programmes, uh, education programmes, livelihood enhancement programmes, women's microcredits, mm-hmm. you know, empowering women to, to develop their own businesses. I read that 2,000 women have benefited from that yeah. programme alone. Which yeah, is really- we, we release about $100,000 equivalent into a loan portfolio across 2,000 women in the communities surrounding Lewa. As I say, in an effort to empower women and give them the opportunity to generate their own revenue in this part of the world, and it's worked really, really well. COVID this year has been a a challenge for them and for us, but interestingly enough, they've managed to work their way through that, and they're continuing to repay their loans, even though they've been slightly delayed. And then... You know, the evolution over the last 15 to 20 years of community conservancies um, and the community conservancy model, which has really taken root in this part of the world, in this part of Kenya, but also across the whole of Kenya, with Kenyan communities really embracing the opportunity to manage the wildlife that appears on their land for their benefit. And it's been an extremely exciting last 15 to 20 years to see Kenyans embrace that opportunity and really prove to themselves, prove to the Kenyan government and prove to the international community that this is something that, that works and continues to grow and thrive in this country, really as, a, as an example to many other countries in Is tourism Africa. key to that? I mean, it's more than just being able to support themselves and also support the conservation efforts through the day-to-day, right? How do people like us coming to Kenya uh, support that? Does it give it relevance beyond the dollars, I would say? And... How is tourism key to that beyond just the community development and the philanthropic efforts of it? I would say, you know, the dollars are important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Conservation costs money. Yeah. And good conservation costs, you know, money. And that's the reality of it. But beyond that, to have the ability to and the opportunity to talk to people from the international community about what Kenya is about and the successes that we've had with conservation and the successes that communities themselves are having. They take great pride in that opportunity to welcome and to host international tourists in this landscape. And, you know, Kenya is very well known for its wildlife, mm-hmm. very well known for its Big Five, very well known as a safari destination. Up until relatively recently, it was the second biggest uh, foreign income earner in this country. That's an important issue. You know, beyond that, many of the people that come to visit Lewa and, you know, northern Kenya and elsewhere become supporters of the work that we do and the work that other similar institutions to Lewa and the communities do in this country. So, as I said before, you know, 70% of, of Lewa's operations are funded from philanthropic support. And many of those donors are people that have first been introduced to Lewa as tourists. Mm. And the same for you know, elsewhere in northern Kenya. That's what you had broken it down to, a 70% charitable giving philanthropic efforts, 30% tourism. But that's not quite the number, obviously, because the tourism efforts continue to pay dividends down the road, which seems to be so important. 30% obviously is not the majority of the budget, but it's still a significant chunk. So what did you decide to focus your efforts on this year and going forward for the time being while tourism is still depressed? And how did you make those choices? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously March, we saw this coming, not long out, but you know, come March, we, it was pretty clear what was going to happen. And as I say, with 30% of your 
revenue coming from tourism and the fact that that tourism, that earned income, is income that you can do what you want with, whereas philanthropic donors often come with strings attached. Donors give to restricted programs. They'll tell you what they want you to spend that money on within the goals and objectives of the organisation. So to have your income of well over $2 million, which was the equivalent of what we generated in 2019, suddenly ripped out of your budget. And as I say, that's flexible money that you can do what you want with it is significant. And our biggest cost in labor is our staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's our biggest asset, but it's also our biggest cost. And raising money from donors to pay salaries is always difficult. Mm -hmm. So to have your tourism income, which supports probably 70 to 80% of your salaries, suddenly disappear has meant we had to make some very tough decisions in March. We developed an emergency budget, a sort of contingency plan budget, if you will, for 2020, recognising what cash we had at hand and what cash we absolutely guaranteed. We cut salaries substantially. We probably reduced our salary budget by 65%. We put 95 people on unpaid leave. All those people that stayed were on substantial salary cuts. But what we did is we tried to ensure that we were going to be able to continue, even if at a reduced level, to deliver on our commitments as a conservation organisation and as a development-centric organisation. Mm-hmm. So we've maintained our focus in support of communities. Education was able to take a backseat slightly because all schools were closed by the Kenyan government in April mm-hmm. uh, for reasons of COVID and remain generally closed to date. And so our education programme has been on the back burner for a while, but we've made significant, uh, continue to make significant investments into health programs for obvious reasons, both COVID and other reasons. The women's micro lending program continued to be important. Sustainable agriculture was another thing. And the importance of that uh, was only increased as people's ability to feed themselves became ever more important. And that alongside our our sort of wildlife and conservation commitments in terms of providing protection for the rhino here Mm -hmm. on Lewa and other wildlife were our key focus for, for 2020. So Lewa is obviously a success story. It's indisputable, just the animal numbers alone and the community development. But are there things you know now about how it's grown and developed and and become a success that you wish you'd known at the beginning that would have made it that much easier? (laughs) If we'd known then what we know now, we would have pushed hard to diversify revenue streams right from the outset, Mm. you know, to have two pillars to your business model in terms of revenue, i.e. tourism revenue and philanthropic support, is too much like putting all your eggs in one basket. And and, and whilst we've survived and and, and whilst we've flourished, we've always, well, particularly recently, over the last five, ten years, been looking to see how we can diversify those revenue streams. If we had been able to do that from the outset as an organization and build on a platform of maybe four or five key pillars of our financial model, that would have set us in a much more robust situation, particularly to weather you know, the storms that, that do occur. And they have over the last 20 years. I mean, COVID is just one of the challenges that has beset us as an organization and beset the country. I mean, you look at financial, global financial challenges, you look mm-hmm. at terrorism-related insecurity issues, etc., which impact tourism. Yeah. So we've had challenges over the last 20 years. You know, we've survived them, we've flourished. But if we'd had that greater level of diversity of our revenue streams, we'd have sweated less over the last 20 to 25 years. And the other one I I think is, I think whilst we've been good at, I think you can never do enough of, is partnership. Mm-hmm. Partnership, and when I mean partnership, I mean partnership with, with everyone, mm-hmm. whether it's communities, whether it's government, whether it's other private sector entities. The ability to partner with all of your stakeholders and work closely with them is 
critical, absolutely mm-hmm. critical. It's been our real competitive advantage to partner with communities and to get engagement with communities, but you can never do enough of it. And it's something that we almost on a daily basis reinforce to ourselves because it can take you 30 years to build a trusting relationship. You can lose it in 30 minutes That's right. if you do the wrong thing. So whilst I'd say we've done pretty well at it, we could have done even better. Mm. What are some things that other conservation organizations can do to replicate Lewa's successes, it sounds like one of them is community-based <laughs> development, yeah. needs to be a core tenet yeah. of the mission. So yeah, community, community, community. I mean, mm. that, that, as I say, has been our sort of watchword and our real sort of guiding star. And it's really set us in very, very good stead. So I can't reinforce that enough. And I think the one thing that I often parrot to people is wildlife conservation and wildlife management's got absolutely nothing to do with managing wildlife and everything to do with managing people Mm -hmm. because if you can get the population or the people dynamics right be it communities be it government be it private sector stakeholders be it donors whatever uh, and dedication and focus into that and provide an enabling environment at a landscape level in which wildlife can flourish it will it'll do its own thing you don't have to interfere too much with it COVID has allowed us to do a fair amount of navel gazing and it's also given us a kick up the backside to look at things and more seriously consider some of the things that we've been considering over the last four or five years but never really got to because we've been so busy doing everything else and there's a a sort of strategic discussion. Kenya government is having these discussions at a ministerial level, at a wildlife service level as to what the future of conservation in this country should look like and opportunities for public-private partnership and public-private and community partnership, formal partnerships between government, private sector and communities for the management of government land and other land, both at a national level and at a county level, are starting to gain traction. Mm. To plug, if you will, the gaps in the jigsaw puzzle, if you were to look at northern Kenya today, you will see you know, a, a jigsaw of community conservancy land, of private sector land, but also of government reserves, be they forest reserves, national reserves, or even national parks. And we believe that as Leo and NRT, with our sort of experience and sort of trusted relationships with communities and government, We have an opportunity to partner with government Mm. to assist in protected area management. And so that's where we see the sort of next big step for us as Labour and Northern Rangers Trust, which is quite exciting. If Um, I'm understanding you correctly, it would be the government bringing in private enterprises, conservancies and stuff to help them manage the land that they've got under conservation in the national parks to farm it, to contract out some of that work. Yeah, and I sense what we'll end up with is sort of trials and pilots of it to see Mm -hmm. how it works. I mean, private sector's generally very good at raising finance. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's good at accessing donor funds, generally fairly nimble in terms of decision-making. And so that combined with the strength uh, and weight of government and government-owned land, which from a sort of large-scale investment perspective is good collateral mm-hmm. from a sort of to leverage finance against, uh, you know, a sort of match made in heaven mm-hmm. in terms of what the opportunities are for raising large amounts of finance to support large pieces of real estate which do need to be effectively managed and do need to be generating the sort of revenue that they can and do need to continue to be ever more relevant to the communities that surround them. Mm-hmm. You know, because if national parks 
themselves, rather like us as Lewa, as I was saying, if we're not seen as being relevant to Kenyans in the mm -hmm. future, we'll disappear. You've only got to look elsewhere in the world to see national parks being degazetted and national reserves being degazetted. It could happen here, but if it's relevant, if it's beneficial to those people that surround it, if politicians at a, at a local and a national level see these as resources that they should protect because they are beneficial to the communities, then they will perpetuate. It all comes down to the people. It comes down to the people. Mm. Wildlife will do its own thing and have proven that mm -hmm. in spades. That's incredible. Well, we're going to head out this afternoon to see some more of the rhinos, but thank you very much for your time. This has oh, been well, thank you. illuminating. A pleasure and welcome again. Thank, thank you. It sounds like Lewa has had a lot of issues to contend with this past year, but that they've done an awesome job of rising to the occasion and finding a way to get through this crisis. They certainly have. And in addition to supporting such worthy causes, I'd encourage anyone who is able and has the inclination to visit Lewa for a few days themselves. It was truly some of the most beautiful scenery we experienced in Kenya, and the wildlife viewing was incredible. I'll also put in a little plug for Kifaru House, which was a gorgeous lodge perched on a promontory overlooking miles and miles of foothills. You could see herds of elephants, zebras, and giraffes walking in the distance, and cute little hyraxes came to visit me in my outdoor shower and probably stopped by for a drink, so I had just a fantastic time there. I can imagine. And you left the wilds of the Kenyan bush for a final day in Nairobi at another interesting project, right? That's right. After we got back to the capital, we drove to one of the largest informal settlements, or slums, in Nairobi, which is called Mahuru. There, Mikado Safaris runs several impactful programs through its philanthropic arm, AmericaShare. For every safari booked with Mikado, the organization sends a child from Uhuru to primary school, which includes providing them with supplies, uniforms, and necessities to make sure they are given lunch every day. It also has a couple of other academic programs that send gifted students to private boarding schools and awards individual scholarships through the Shining Star Fund. I'm not sure if you've ever been to Mahuru, Catherine, but I thought I'd play you a little recording I made at Harambe with my on-the-ground impressions. It's the last day of my trip to Kenya in December with Mikado Safaris. After we flew back into Nairobi, we headed straight to the city's second largest slum, a place called Mukuru, where Mikado Safaris founded and supports a philanthropy called America Share. Mukuru itself is incredible. It's a warren of rutted dirt streets and alleys with corrugated metal buildings, tiny, tiny cubbies with everything from butcher shops and men's barbers to electronics repair and tire shops, shops reselling old shoes and even water points where children gather with plastic buckets to bring water back to their home since there's no running water here. And then we pulled through the gates of a beautiful little campus right in the heart of it with a full-size basketball court out front that was built with money raised by Mikado Safari's guests. There are two libraries, one for older children and one for younger children that are spotless. And the Harambe Center, which is a computer center where people can come and learn how to use computers, learn computer literacy skills, use the internet for free. There's also a nursery school and a playground, and you might be able to hear birds tweeting in the backgrounds. It's a world apart, and yet it's such a center for the people in the area here, hundreds, thousands of whom come and use the services and have over the years. We are going to have a tour with one of the students who was able to have his education funded and is now a medical student. And then I'll be talking with Alba, the director, a little later.
It sounds like such a place of contrasts, street butchers next to electronic shops and then this park-like community center. Since education is such a focus of theirs, how have they been dealing with the pandemic and continuing to support children? In some pretty innovative ways, actually. I spoke to Albanuski Turu, the country director for America Share, during my visit to learn more. Please pardon the background noise as we were in a workshop for Huru International, which manufactures sanitary kits and provides reproductive health education to poor communities throughout East Africa. The buzzing you'll hear is their sewing machines at full steam. So tell me what America Share is and what work you do. America Share is a not-for-profit organization that is what we call it the philanthropic arm of Mikato Safaris. Mm -hmm. So Mikato gives to the community through America Share. We run a number of programs, but our programs are more anchored in two pillars. Mm -hmm. We have the pillar on education and the pillar on community development. Right. In the education pillar, we do uh, sponsorship programs for vulnerable children in Mukuru slums. And the development program is the community outreach programs where we are running a computer center, a library, all housed within a community center called Harambe Center in Mukuru Kwanjenga slums. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You also, the education portion includes scholarships and then also just basic support for children going to government primary schools as well. Basic things like uniforms, some school supplies, the firewood, I believe, to cook their meals, things that we might not think about as necessary. I think about, you know, pencils and notebooks, <laughs> but I, didn't, I wouldn't think about those things as an American as being necessities. Education is uh, our main program. It has uh, different facets. One uh, that is standing out probably is the one-for-one -one commitment that from every safari that Mikato sells, uh, we are getting proceeds to keep a kid in school. Keeping a child in school entails a lot in Kenya. Primary education is free, but then there are other hidden charges like uh, what you've just said. We have uniform, we have uh, firewood, we have some aspect of lunch and uh, some stationary and school supplies. So Mikato is making it possible that we can be able to give a whole set of uniform for the children, also be able to provide other school-related costs to keep the kid in school. This one-for-one -one commitment, we are in partnership with uh, the local uh, public primary schools, and we are reaching out to around several thousands, so actually around above 2,000 children mm -hmm. within uh, the Mukuru community. Mm. Does the fact that America's share is supported by Mikado Safaris, which is it's a travel company, it's a tourism company, does that make a difference to the way that America's share operates? I would say that uh, America Share still operates like a typical non-profit. The only difference is the source of funds, that uh, this funding is coming entirely through Mikato and Mikato-related contacts. Mm -hmm. So uh, like the school uh, sponsorship program, the sponsors are previous or current travelers who are, are coming in to Kenya for safari with Mikato. This tilts the way the program works slightly because it adds more on uh, the motivation and the passion of staff mm -hmm. because those people that are funding the programs, the sponsors and the guests that come to the, the facility will get a hands-on experience and they'll be able to witness what exactly the organization is doing. So you find that uh, how we operate then becomes slightly different from the other non-profit organizations because our program design is more results-oriented. Mm -hmm. 
and that improves so much on the impact of our work compared to the traditional donors that would uh, you know send you funds but then they are in the west uh, don't come to experience they more so depend on the kind of reports you send but uh, when they are coming whoever is supporting us is coming to see a showcase of exactly what we are doing then the organization becomes more credible the results become more realistic yes that is a, a very important distinction you know both from travel perspective that you've gone on your safari you've experienced Kenya perhaps Tanzania also but that you do at the end of a Mikado trip come to see what you're doing uh, at America Sharon at the Harambe Community Center and it's also different i felt than when you're at a safari lodge and just go up the road to a school where again you don't know what's coming from what source of income what you as a guest are expected to do whereas with this particular experience it's just built in and going off what you said travelers come to visit the children get to interact with them normally and <laughs> not mm-hmm. right now unfortunately mm-hmm. how do the students tell you they feel about those visits and on the other side how do travelers who come to visit you tell you that they feel after visiting to me i look more of travelers who come with a certain uh, mindset mikato sells most of its safaris on the angle that uh, apart from traveling you're getting a chance to give back mm-hmm. when they ask about giving back and they feel like mikato has a center in a slum so they'll they'll carry the stereotypic thinking of a slum but when they get to kuru and they get to harambe center we call it an oasis of hope Mm-hmm. The center is well kept, very green, lush lawns, and you'll see the aspect of surprise mm-hmm. that this contrasts the kind of uh, path that they've come through. And for us, this is giving the positive image that amidst the poverty, there is still something positive to look out to. So I love the fact that doing this Mikato setting up America Share becomes more like structured giving mm-hmm. as opposed to when uh, travelers guests you know go on safari and then they'll just pop out into a community probably give a few dollars here and there but this is structured and you're able to see the impact and the effect of your giving mm-hmm. to the community for the students this is a great moment because someone someone's out there has made your life through supporting your education and this person has given to your education uh, probably for the last 4 or 5 years and you get a chance to meet this person it's like meeting an angel mm. you know <laughs> that's, that's a really wonderful way yeah i think part of the experience of coming into the community center as you said it's a moment of surprise especially having driven through the streets and alleys mm-hmm. seeing the people just going about daily life lining up for water and you get to the center and again it is it's calm birds are singing there are trees like what struck me at least was the children who were there obviously many fewer than normal i would say mm-hmm. you know outside smiling participating in a lesson people in the computer centers heads down hard at work going for whatever's next in life mm-hmm. and the kids in the library you know doing their math homework you know writing essays and stuff like that gives you such a sense of the mission and the energy of america share but we're in covid right now and it's you know it seems like here perhaps schools also closed for part of the time and obviously you can't have as many students around as normal so 
How has COVID affected America's Share's educational programs this past year? And what have you done to cope with that disruption? So COVID uh, really affected our programs when the government uh, indefinitely closed the schools. So all the kids, uh, those that are in the sponsorship program and those that, you know, from within the community, all of them were home. So we got our concern that uh, our kids are home. How safe are our kids? And I think uh, from there we got our COVID response strategy. Initially, visiting the homes and distributing cloth masks for all the families within the beneficiary households and uh, ensuring that uh, we give them some bit of education on how to conduct themselves within this period. On the education part, after giving the masks, we realized that the kids are staying home for a longer time. They'll need to get more engaged. Mm -hmm. So we were able to buy some revision booklets and we distributed that to all the kids. This is more like a booklet that would have questions uh, for every subject. So this keeps the kid engaged because they'll be now doing the sums or the questions. For around two to three weeks, they had something to keep them busy. After that, we came back and uh, realized that this is still not going. It takes uh, some more time. We're in it for the long run. Yes, yes. <laughs> Strategically started thinking how best we can approach this. That's when we had our light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. Why can't we use technology to enhance learning and engagement of our kids? Mm -hmm. So America Share through Mikato bought all the kids in the program smartphones. We were able to negotiate with the data provider to provide enough data, renewable on a monthly basis, to keep the kids engaged. We talked to some of the teachers that we are now not working, they were at home and uh, we agreed to get a set of five teachers that were willing to come and support, develop a curriculum for high school. Mm -hmm. We ran live stream of uh, lessons in mathematics, uh, chemistry, physics, and uh, biology for our high schools. Wow. So we were doing a series of 40 lessons in a week mm -hmm. that covered the entire high school population. From uh, end of June, through to end of November, our kids were engaged, mm. learning wherever they were. Mm -hmm. I would say the, the new normal made us adapt in different ways. Mm -hmm. So some of our staffs took new roles, our staff members. Mm -hmm. We had, uh, you know, form like a mini school uh, within the center. Mm -hmm. Our chief librarian took charge the, of the coordination of the Zoom lessons. Mm -hmm. And I, I keep calling her my mini principal because uh -huh. she would coordinate the teachers, they do the lesson planning, and she would get all the kids invited into WhatsApp groups. Then they would send the Zoom invitation passcodes in their WhatsApp groups. Mm -hmm. Then kids will log in and join the classes uh, mm -hmm. at the comfort of their home. Mm -hmm. This was an eye-opener for us, uh -huh. that having over 350 kids participating in online learning and seeing the beauty of technology, some parents could not leave the screen of their kids. Mm. They would want to confirm, are you sure that the teacher is in Harambe Center and you're at home and you're able to learn and this is constructive learning? So it has improved so much on uh, the inquisitive nature of our kids. Some who were not confident enough to, you know, come out boldly in class, ask questions. Since you are home with your phone, you're feeling no one else is, you know, looking at me and I can engage the teacher, I can ask questions. 
So it has really improved the level of confidence to our kids. Most of the parents are really struggling. Some lost their jobs. Life is not that easy. When we did our home assessments, we have a team of social workers who are visiting all homes just to keep engaging and checking on our beneficiary families on how they are going. And uh, we realized that food was a problem. To address the immediate and short-term food needs, America Share was providing food packages to the families. Mm -hmm. So we were able to negotiate good rates with a local convenience store and we provide food that can take the family a whole month. For that period of COVID, most of them felt that America Share is walking the path with them. And uh, the last bit was how else can we discuss reproductive health issues and challenges yeah. with these young boys and girls. Mm -hmm. We set up reproductive health sessions, got an expert to come and talk to all our uh, beneficiary uh, students from uh, 11 to 18 years. And we ran a series of uh, seven sessions for girls and seven sessions for boys. Later on, we realized that even amidst all that uh, learning, with students, you still need to find a way that you can hammer the message home. So we continued doing ongoing mentorship mm -hmm. on a monthly basis from October, November, and December, we've been engaging them. And they get a chance to meet a mentor, a person that they look upon, mostly living within the same community, mm -hmm. and they were free now to share their challenges. Yeah. And they will talk about drug abuse, crime, you know, sexual reproductive health issues, seek advice whenever it's possible. And I would say that uh, that was also another aspect that we never thought that would uh, venture into reproductive health issues. We never thought we would get into technology for education purposes. The new normal, I think I would say my staff, mm -hmm. a very commendable team mm -hmm. because they were able to take up new roles and everything moved seamlessly. Mm -hmm. And amidst all this, we still kept to our mission, mm -hmm. which is education. That's right. Yes. That's lots of examples of very shining silver linings to a very bad situation and how quickly your team was able to adapt to the circumstances almost even more impressive than the work you do normally just because of the amount of pressure sure. uh, and financial and social that were on not just you, mm -hmm. but the children and families that you work with, obviously. If I can turn to one personal story as we finish up here, is it George, the young man who took us around yesterday, the center? Yes. He uh, told us his story and he came up with you from the age of 11 and was sent to a private primary school and then all through high school and now is studying to be a doctor. When you help a child like that develop over the course of over a decade into their full potential or towards their full potential rather, because it seems like he still has a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, he seems like a phenomenal person. How does that make you feel and, and where do you see America Share going in, in the future to produce more outcomes like that? I would say it's great joy for you to see transformation, not for a community, but even for one person. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, this is what keeps me going. This is what gives me the passion to continue doing what I'm doing. George and many other uh, students uh, or children that joined probably at 10 or nine years, these are children whose future was bleak. They never knew they would even finish their primary school education. But now look at them 
the horizon is open the world is out there for them to go and conquer and i would say this is the greatest moment we ever have last year towards december we graduated our first medical doctor in the program george is the second one but uh, we had justice and i'll tell you i think it was celebration for the entire community for the entire america share staff and the students even joined in to congratulate and celebrate him so this gives us the new energy we see revamped you know diligence to continue with our roles and you can see the transformation from a little child you know to an adolescent to a, to a young lady and you know even a young man and you you see someone who is having a lot a lot of potential and were it not for the intervention of america she and mikato then maybe this kid would have been wasted on the streets mm. yeah one other thing i would add is that the more georges there are the more other children see what's possible for them and the more people in the community invest with their time and interest in what you're doing and when george creates two creates for 16 it's exponential hopefully so all i can say is i truly enjoyed my visit i thought safari was the highlight of my trip but it was not <laughs> visiting you was and um i'll be following with interest to see what new developments come from here mm-hmm. thank you so much for the interview we are also looking forward to continue transforming the mukuru community homeschooling kids here in the us during the pandemic has created all sorts of issues but I can't even imagine trying to tackle the problem in Mohuru where most people don't even have access to the internet let alone data services or mobile phones. The fact that America Share has managed to continue their operations and even improve them in some ways while keeping kids and teachers engaged is truly awe-inspiring. It goes to show that even though travel might have dried up this past year, tourism companies can still accomplish so much good beyond providing direct economic support to their employees. Exactly. And learning about America Share made me realize that I'll have to be more aware when booking trips in the future that I look for companies like Mikado that hold steady to their philanthropic commitments through both good and lean times. That's really key. I know I spent the first few months of 2020 in Kenya but hearing about Lewa and Harambe makes me want to return more than ever. There are so many incredible places I still need to explore in the country. And I just got back a month ago but I'm already excited to return. For more information on the organizations in this episode, visit consciousstravelerpod.com and follow us on Instagram at consciousstravelerpod to see photos of Eric's time at Lewa and with America Share. We'd like to give special thanks to Matthew Carpenter who composed the music you heard in this episode.